Well, he is good, amen? I'm excited to be with you all this morning again, getting back into the book of James. Um, if you've been with our church for some time, you know that we have been going through James's letter, and we paused that for two weeks uh, because of Holy Week. Essentially, we had Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday last week, which were both wonderful. But I am excited to dig back into the book of James. So go ahead and turn to James chapter 3 in your Bibles this morning because we're going to be picking up there where we left off. And what we have been seeing in James's letter is this thread of examination and evaluation relative to genuine faith. And today we're going to see this examination relative to godly wisdom and the contrast against worldly wisdom. Now, as we move forward, I'll, I'll start off with this question. How many of you have ever had a time in your life where you did something thinking you were making a wise decision when hindsight revealed it was a really bad decision? Just me. Okay. All right. Thank you, Isaac, for being honest. And you encouraged everyone else to be honest as well. Thank you. Um, I know that's happened to me plenty of times. And guys, I have a really, really, really fresh example, like yesterday. <laughs> so those of you who don't know, my family and I, after Easter, we went down to Florida for a little vacation. And yesterday morning, 7 a.m., we got in the car to drive back to Wisconsin and got home last night at like 1.30. I'm going off of three and a half hours of sleep right now. And herein is where I thought, you know what? Last year, my wife and I and our two daughters, we drove by ourselves and we stopped halfway. We left on Friday. But this year, we're going with our brothers and sister-in-law and our niece. And so if I get tired, then Eric can drive and I can sleep. So I'll be rested for Sunday because we all know that sleeping in vehicles works really well. And you get really refreshed through travel sleep. That was a dumb idea. <laughs> and so today we're going to just bank on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the power of the Word of God. Actually, that's what we're going to bank on every Sunday anyways. Um, but no, that's a time wherein I thought I thought it through. And even my wife was like, are you sure we should do it that way? And I was like, honey, it'll be fine. I'll sleep while Eric drives. I'll be rested. I'll preach Sunday and it'll be good. Yeah, that was dumb. I'm not doing that again. In our last sermon in James, we talked about taming the tongue Aaron preached. And, and now today in chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 13, where when we talked about taming the tongue, James really helped us see that in our flesh, it's impossible. The tongue is a very powerful, very unruly, very dangerous thing that is also powerful and, and good when used rightly. And when we submit our tongue, our words, our speech to the word of God in genuine faith, then we use our words to build up rather than to tear down. Today, as we pick up in verse 13, we'll be talking about wisdom from God, wisdom from above, and how the wisdom from God contrasts and is different than the wisdom of the world. It makes me think of Proverbs 14 and verse 12 where it says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. 
That's, the pro, that's Proverbs right there saying that there is a way that the world goes, that looks right. That seems wise. That looks like the best or right decision. But I can see, or the word of God would declare, that that way that people think is right leads to death and destruction. There are arguments to be made by all of us for the many, many stupid decisions we've made in our lives or the bad decisions or harmful decisions. There are many ways wherein we can try to justify them, the, the, the things that we have done in worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. One of the primary things that we see throughout the letter that James wrote is it is the New Testament writing of wisdom literature like the Old Testament Proverbs wisdom literature. James also wrote his letter thematically with, uh, from the style of wisdom literature, which is why it feels very similar to Proverbs in those ways. One of the many sentiments that James, though, weaves through this letter over and over and over again, we've seen it already, we'll see it again today, is this theme of evaluation, self-evaluation. What we'll primarily see from today's text is that godly wisdom is seen in godly living. Godly wisdom is seen in godly living. Let's pick up in verse 13 and start reading James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, talking about the wise person, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James continues in this thread that he has woven throughout the entire letter, a thread of self-evaluation and examining our actions to determine our motives. If you really wanted to cut this into a more concise statement, what is James saying in his entire letter? Something for us to apply is simply two words, check yourself. Now, the way I would have heard that growing up in street lingo would have been, check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's what I heard growing up, and apparently a couple of you have as well, that we ought to examine ourselves. And how many of you know it's better to first examine yourself than to require examination from others because you didn't examine yourself? Now, let me say, examination from other brothers and sisters in Christ is biblical and good and loving and caring and kind. When a brother comes up to us or a sister comes up to us to say, hey, I see this in your life, that is love. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Meaning when a friend, a genuine, loving, caring brother or sister in Christ comes up to you to help you examine what you didn't see in yourself, that's a good thing. I, for one, 
would like to personally act on what James is trying to give us in wisdom to practice self-examination. Let me put it another way. Would you rather realize on your own or from someone else telling you that your fly is open? You'd rather realize that on your own. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's so true that I'm telling you absolute truth every single Sunday before I walk out here, I check my fly because I have this terrible fear that someday I'm going to be up here preaching God's word with passion with the barn door open. And none of us want that. And how hard would that be to recover from? Someone coming up and saying, Pastor Stephen, your, your fly's open. Didn't really want to tell you now, but you're kind of up in front of everybody, and you probably need to know that and probably need to fix that. So because I don't want that to happen, I daily examine myself. And yes, as you might be able to tell, it's happened enough where I've realized I need to examine myself therein regularly. And so, sorry, not trying to be whatever there, but that's a really clear and good example as to why self-examination is a good thing. Now, I am thankful when someone comes up to me and says, hey, can we talk? Come here for a minute. Yeah, what's up? You want prayer for something? I'm like, no, your fly's undone. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Fix. I am thankful for when a brother or sister helps me examine what I missed. And part of what James paints for us throughout his letter is that the word of God is a mirror for us to look into and examine ourselves. We see this in the opening chapters where he's saying, hey, let's not be hearers of the word only, but be doers also. And that hearers only, those who don't do, are deceiving themselves. They think they're going about not recognizing their flies open. That further he would go on to say, hey, don't be the people who declare, I have faith in God, but have no works that have evidence or proof that you have faith in God. And if you have faith in God, you will have works. Let's examine if you don't have works, you probably don't have faith. He goes on further to say, talking about that taming of the tongue, that passage, that section, which also shows us that if you have genuine faith in God, it will come out in your words, in your vocabulary selection, in the way that you communicate with others, in the way that you choose to build others up rather than tear others down. Genuine faith is confirmed that way. Let's evaluate and examine our speech. Let's examine the way that we use our words as a indicator of our faith. And now James continues here in chapter 3, verse 13 in this section, the call to self-examination, this time not about faith, but about whether we have godly wisdom or worldly wisdom. That checking ourself is something that we ought to do on a regular basis. It's something that we ought to do on a daily basis. None of you, hopefully, probably, walked out of the house this morning without giving a look in the mirror, right? Why? Because you want to go out making sure 
that you look like what you think you look like and the fly's not open and the hair's not all crazy and you don't have something stuck in your teeth. The same way, daily, we ought to start every day with examination, evaluation. We ought to pray like the psalmist said, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. If there is any improper motive or any temptation for sin or anything like that, any actions or motives or behaviors that we are facilitating that are unpleasing to God, don't we want him to help us see them? Don't we want him to help us find those, evaluate them, and zip them up? Yeah, absolutely we do. So self-examination is not something we just do every Easter, every communion, it's not something we do a couple of times a year. It ought to be something that we're continually doing throughout the day. As we do things, examining, what are my motives right now in this thing I'm doing? The offering bucket passed by earlier, and maybe you gave. As you gave, what was your motive in giving? Was it so someone else might see you drop something in the bucket? Was it so that you could get a blessing back? Or was it because you wanted to be a contributor to God's kingdom out of gratitude, generosity, and thankfulness for what he has done? This book of James has been a book that is encouraging his audience to practice this examination over and over and over. Above, we just read that James is now challenging that self-evaluation of one's own wisdom and understanding. Remember the very first thing he said in this section. He said, who among you is wise and understanding? Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, if James was here today talking to all of us and he said that, like, who here, who among you is wise and understanding? And he just kind of stopped and looked around. None of us is going to go like, yeah, yeah I, feel, I feel like I am. In fact, we'd probably be going like, this is awkward. If I raise my hand, it's going to look like I'm a prideful person. I think you're wise. You should probably go ahead and raise your hand. I'll be like, yeah, he's wise. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? But James is not asking for a show of hands. He show, he's asking for a show of actions. Let's look at this again. He said, by his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So he asks, who is wise and understanding among you? And he says, whoever you are, if you are wise and understanding, by your good conduct, show that your works in meekness, or show, uh, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. James is asking for a, not a show of hands, but a show of godliness. He said that those who are wise will show by their good conduct in the meekness of their wisdom that they are proven to be so. This also pulls thematically from what we cited earlier in chapter 2 where James famously says that faith without works is dead. That if you have faith, you will have works. He's saying here, if you have wisdom, it will also come out in the way that you live. The same way that our works are fruit and evidence of our faith, James is saying that if you are wise and have understanding, then it will be evident to all, it will be visible in your conduct. That's why it's so important to do that examination, looking in the mirror, evaluating ourselves, to, to examine, does the wisdom that I think I have mirror godly wisdom from God's word, or does it mirror worldly wisdom? 
This is why we need to do this daily. This is why we need to do this perpetually throughout the day. Examine ourselves. Check ourselves. Now, James goes on to say that the lack of wisdom is proven by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. Verse 14 states, he says that such wisdom is not from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Then he compares that in verse 17 by stating that wisdom that is truly from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, the interesting thing about the section that my friend Sam, who's interning with me, he, that he pointed out that I thought was really astute, is that in all the different translations of the Bible that you could read this verse, you'll see different words rendered out in many different ways. The one word that is rendered out the same in all these different translations is that first one, which is pure. Now, if I asked you, hey guys, how would you explain godly wisdom? Please give me a definition. Explain to me godly wisdom. How many of you would first think, okay, if I want to explain godly wisdom to someone, I would say pure. No, we'd start thinking like, well, that's like God making you smart so that you can make good decisions that honor and glorify him and are non-destructive. But James is saying godly wisdom is first pure before it's anything else. He says it is first pure. This comes from uh, the Greek word agnos, which means chaste or clear. And pure is also the same word that's used in the Old Testament that God uses when he's prescribing the, the creation, the crafting, and the building of the instruments made from gold for the tabernacle. These instruments of worship, he requires that they are pure gold, without flaw, without defect. And what's interesting, if you consider that Greek word, annos, it transliterated in English, it's H-A-G-N-O-S. The, the Greek word for holy, remember last week we talked about the word holy on Easter, is very relative and very similar. It's aios, H-A-I-G-I-O-S, which is the Greek word for holy. What we can see here is that purity and holiness go hand in hand. And God's wisdom in our life, if we have wisdom from above, not worldly wisdom, it will first in our lives look like purity. They go hand in hand. That pureness or purity is what was acceptable before God in the tabernacle, this place where his spirit, his presence was going to dwell. And now I ask you this, in the New Testament, where does the presence of God dwell? Not in a tabernacle, but where does he dwell now? inside of us. Paul told the Corinthians that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, wherein God's presence used to dwell in that tent in the tabernacle. Then his presence used to dwell in the temple that was built. Now in the new covenant, his presence dwells within each and every child of God. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us the moment that we are saved and made new by the Spirit of God. So one of the things we need to ask ourselves when we're trying to discern wisdom in our lives, if you want to know, is this wisdom from God? Ask yourself this, is it pure? Is this wisdom? Well, is, is it pure? Because James is saying wisdom is first, God's wisdom is first pure. Or is this idea stained with worldliness? Is it marred with impure motives? 
Is it skewed in its implications? Does it mirror and look like worldliness or does it look like purity and holiness from God? For example, the wisdom of the world would say as it pertains to marrying someone, well, before you get married, you really ought to kick the tires, go for a test drive and make sure that you're compatible, sexually compatible. That's the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world would say, well, hey, if if you, you don't want to get married and get down the road and find out that you weren't sexually compatible, and so you better kick the tires first and make sure that you got that taken care of. And if you are, then you know, and you can have a happy marriage. In the Word of God, godly wisdom would say, actually, God designed male and female compatible. That's the way God designed it. You don't have to kick the tires or try it out. You as a couple in God's design get to figure that out together. In God's design, in God's timing, in God's way, in purity with God's wisdom. Now, I'm not up here trying to point the finger and condemn anyone. If you have not um, practiced that godly wisdom in that area, I'm not here trying to say, shame on you. How dare you? You bad person, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We all need grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And even if you were perfect in an abstinence leading into marriage, Jesus kind of crushes all of us with that whole, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed the very act of adultery with her in your heart. So for those of us who are sitting there going, man, some people must be really uncomfortable in this room right now with what he's talking about. Sheesh. You're forgetting you're just as guilty in your heart as someone who had committed the act. And that we all need a savior. So if you are here and you're feeling condemned, I'm not trying to condemn you if you've partaken in these acts. I'm saying let's live in godly wisdom which is pure and holy. If you've violated that, repent Ask God to forgive you and move forward. If you're sitting here on the other side going, sucks for that crowd who's broken that rule, my goodness. Uh, You need the word of God and Jesus to say, hey, you ever looked at the opposite sex with uh, lust? Okay, zip it. Because that was me. I could walk around forever with my little virginity patch on my arm going, all my other friends, they might be breaking those rules, but not me. I was deeply addicted to lustful sin. Wasn't planning on going off on that tangent today, but maybe somebody needed that. Beyond this, another area wherein worldly wisdom would be impure contrasted to godly wisdom, which would be pure. This one's going to be fun, stepping on more toes, yeah. Is where we'd say, hey, let's... um, You know, we could save money if we went ahead and we moved in together. We could pool our resources, save money on housing and living expenses, and that'll set us up better for the future. That sounds wise to many. That sounds like let's save money. We'll be better set up for the future if we do this. But godly wisdom would say, actually, Let's do anything and everything we can to preserve purity in our relationship, to resist sexual temptation as unmarried people. Let's elevate protecting our future marriage through purity rather than protecting our future marriage through financial mutual benefit. 
recognizing that godly wisdom, which is first pure, would say money and financial position is not as important as purity. Now, once more, I'm not here trying to make you feel uncomfortable if you've done that or if you are doing that. What I am trying to do is help us see that there are ways in which this world says this is wise. And if we use worldly wisdom, we go, yeah, yeah, actually, let's save money. Let's do that. It makes sense. And we'll be (laughs) strong-willed. Yeah, right. And then godly wisdom says, no, I know the world says that, but my wisdom is pure. If it's wisdom from God, it will be pure. It will be holy. And it feels really nice and comfortable in this room with this conversation. The things of the world are impure and only seek out to serve selfish ambitions and or pleasures or convenience or comfort. And godly wisdom does not elevate any of those things. Godly wisdom elevates purity. And we'll see here in just a moment some of the other things that godly wisdom elevates. Next, James says that wisdom from God will be peaceable. So when you ask, is it wisdom from God? Ask yourself, is it peaceable? Let me say that another way. Is it conducive to a harmonious relationship or harmonious relationships? I'm going to preach to myself right now. I am someone who struggles with a deep need to always be right. I know I'm the only one, right? I tend to think I'm always right. And if I have a disagreement with someone, I also tend to be the person who has to have the last word. And some of this can come from the fact that I'm passionate about truth and I'm a man of conviction. I have very deep and very strong convictions and I don't want to be a person who has a noodly spine, who's vacillating back and forth, who goes with every shift of the wind. I want to to have strong biblical convictions. I want to be passionate and committed to the truth. And I believe that that would be godly wisdom. The ways in which I can easily drift into worldly wisdom is by letting my flesh rise pride up within me, wherein the conviction and the passion for truth crosses a line to where my pride steps in and then starts caring more about being right than I care about just contending for the truth in humility with meekness and gentleness. Please pray for my wife because she has to deal with me the most on this and gets the brunt of this. I want to be someone. I don't want to go back on being convicted. I want to have strong convictions based on the word of God. I want to be someone who contends for the truth. I don't want to be someone who hears error or deceit and just goes, I'd rather not. I want to be someone who's strong and convicted in those things. Yet I also want to have wisdom from God that helps me not be someone who dies on little molehills, who who hurts relationships, who has to have the last word every time. And I want to be someone who is peaceable. And actually, I believe this goes on into the next things that James says, when he says it rolls right into the next few adjectives that James uses for godly wisdom, he says, 
It's pure first, then peaceable. He then says it's gentle and open to reason. That the wisdom from God is gentle and open to reason. Man, if we need something more in our world, it is gentleness paired with an openness to reason. We have become so accustomed to digging our deep trenches where we're on this side of the battlefield and those other people are on the other side in their trenches and they're lobbing their grenades at us and we're lobbing our grenades back at them. And there is so little gentle reasoning happening. The ability to reason with other people that we might even disagree with, to reason in gentleness is so important. As we're in our trenches, we like to lob our grenades over in the form of zingers and memes and gifs and one-liners and these pre-packaged arguments or statements from the people we heard make a good point and we like what they said and so we try and remember it so that when we have an opportunity, we can go, ha <laughs> ha, and come out with our answer or lob our grenade across or start saying names about them the same way they might say names about us and there is zero gentleness. There can be zero openness to reason. Now think about it. When was the last time that, that because you held to an orthodox biblical sexual ethic that someone called you a bigot or your generalized people group of Christians, that someone called us bigots and you thought, hmm, that's probably a person that I can reason with. You don't normally think that way. Why? Because when they lob that, lo that word at you, especially as someone who doesn't even know you, they just go, ah, bigot. You think, well, they've already made up their mind. They're not open to reason. And so why try and reason? Yet we can do the exact same thing where we see people on the other side or we see people who don't know Jesus or aren't following the Lord and we can go, oh, those whatever from our trench, lob those words or just throw arguments at them through social media or through text where it's going through a screen and we're not seeing each other's faces. We don't feel the humanity of the other person and there's no gentleness, no humility, no meekness and no intention of reasoning together. What if when those things were lobbed at us, when we hunker down and start lobbing things back, what if we said, you know what? You called me a bigot. What does that word mean to you? If you're going to call me that, what, is, what, what does that word mean to you? I think a lot of them would go, because uh, 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 <laughs> they don't actually even know sometimes what words they're using. They've just heard someone else say it, so they go, yeah, I'll say it too. That attempt to reason right there can shut that conversation down or at least change its dynamic. Or let's say that you say, hey, you keep, you, you've called me a bigot, which is interesting because you don't really know me. You only know this one thing about me. And a bigot is someone who is, um, you know, someone who is fully committed um, as not being able or not being tolerable at all to someone else's creeds, beliefs, or opinions. And so 
if you think that's me, you know, I could understand why popular Christianity might make you think that way about me, but I'd really love to understand further why you think it's true and accurate and right to use that word about me. Can you explain that to me further? Instead of just going, ha, you think I'm a bigot? Well, guess what? Proverbs says a soft answer turns away wrath. What would it do in all these conversations that are so tense, so escalatory, so hostile, if we as the people of God with the wisdom from God came into these conversations with gentleness and said, hey, can you help me understand why you feel that way? I really want to know. Hey, could you explain to me why you think that's a good word for me? Because I don't feel that way. I can understand maybe why you might think that, but could you help me really understand? And what if... God uses our gentleness and our openness to reason with others as an open door for evangelism. Wherein if we would have just stayed in our trench lobbing whatever words over at the other side like were being lobbed at us, there's no opportunity for that. But when they see a difference in the meek humility, gentleness, and openness to reason with believers, what if God would use that moment to let you plant a seed of the gospel that might reap a harvest in that person's life? Or you can just slam that door shut by being hostile back. Gentleness and an openness to reason. Now, of course, we do need to be discerning on who, on on when those conversations are faithful uses of our time or not. Because if you're trying to reason with someone in that case and they are proving and showing that they're unwilling to reason with you, then that's where you've got to go, okay, this is not a worthy use of my time. Pro tip, usually social media is not a worthy use of your time for this. Very seldom is someone's mind changed on social media and there's the disconnection of the screen, not the humanity of face-to-face. -face. And so I'd encourage you to have reason in face-to-face -face conversations rather than through social media, text, or email where there's no tone and there's no personal humanity across the seat from you. Next, James says that godly wisdom will be full of mercy and good fruits. I love that. Godly wisdom will be full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy meaning kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. Now again, if I asked you to explain godly wisdom, how many of you would have said, oh, godly wisdom, um, that's like mercy. That's probably not the way we would describe godly wisdom. Yet James here is saying, this is one of the things that godly wisdom looks like. It looks like mercy or being full of mercy and good fruit. And so, that shows us that if we have godly wisdom within us, it will move us to care for others. Wherein worldly wisdom would say, look out for number one. Take care of yourself. Do whatever you got to do for you. And then if you've got enough left over, then you can help out others. It's worldly wisdom. Godly wisdom is full of kindness and concern expressed for someone in need. Godly wisdom doesn't say look out for number one, take care of yourself, make sure that you're good, and if you are and you've got enough left over, then help out others. Godly wisdom would say live sacrificially. 
Godly wisdom would say, look out for number one last. Godly wisdom would say, prefer others. Godly wisdom would say, die to yourself. Godly wisdom would look at the model of our master, Jesus, who humbled himself and took on the form of a, of a human, took on human flesh, who Jesus himself said, hey, I didn't come to be served, king of the universe, said I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Our same master Jesus, who the night before he would be betrayed and then led to trial and crucified, shows his disciples hum humble service and meekness by taking the servant's towel, getting down and doing something we all would think is pretty nasty. Like how many of us want to wash each other's feet? Most of us would be like, that's kind of gross. And we're walking around with closed-toed shoes, not open sandals through the dirt. And Jesus says, I'm going to show you what I came for and what I do, I want you to do for one another. This washing of each, of each other's feet, Jesus, in his last night with his disciples goes, I'm going to show you meekness, humility, and service. We are not better than our master. And so godly wisdom looks like being full of mercy and good fruit or good works, which is, again, hearkening back to chapter 2. So when worldly wisdom says, keep it all for yourself, godly wisdom says, ah, give generously, help sacrificially, serve sacrificially. When worldly wisdom says, use others to move your ambitions forward, get as many people together to help you with what you want as you can, godly wisdom says, use yourself, your resources, your abilities, your strength, your connection to serve others, to help move others forward, to help lift others up. You can either use others to lift yourself up or you can use yourself to lift others up. I'll say that again. You can either use others to lift yourself up, or you can use yourself to lift others up. The Christian with godly wisdom recognizes they are not here for themselves, that we are here on a mission as ambassadors, representatives of Christ. And if we are representing the master who took up the servant's towel, if we are representing the master who was broken for the poor and the needy, the helpless, the widow, the orphan, the outcast, the reject, the sinner, the tax collector. If that's our master, we are no better than him. And we are called into the same acts of mercy with good works, remembering that James, every other time in his letter when he talked about good works, he talked about caring for the widow and the orphan. He talked about caring for the poor and the needy. And he would go on finally describing this wisdom to say it is also impartial and sincere. I love that. The godly wisdom causes all of us to look around and go, man, we are no different. We are no different in our need before God. We are all image bearers of God. We are all in need of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, all of us. And therefore, none of us is better than the other, and none of us is beneath the other. Therefore, as children of God, 
Let us treat one another equally, impartially, without partiality. Remember in earlier where he talked about the sin of partiality. Yet he doesn't only say impartiality, he says sincerity. None of us wants to be patronized where we feel like people are treating us like everyone else as some token like, yeah, the Bible told us to treat that person the same, so let's do it. Like none of us wants that. But in sincerity, when we see in truth that we are all image bearers of God, and therefore all deserve the same level of dignity, love, care, and respect. That therein, we offer it to one another. Because before God, we're all the same. We're all sinners in need of a savior. Before God, we are all loved and welcomed. So we are no different. This genuine sincerity comes back to the point of the whole letter. Remember, what's he saying in this whole letter over and over, chapter after chapter after chapter? Examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. Examine yourself to see if your wisdom is from God or from the world. The sincerity is a checking of our hearts, checking ourselves, because we can give in the offering with wrong motives because we can help the needy to get the, bat, the pat on the back from other people. We can partake in acts of service and humility, pseudo-humility, to try and impress other people and make them think that we're spiritual. Wisdom from God changes our heart to where we offer those sacrifices of service in true, genuine humility and encourage you to practice this by looking for opportunities to do things that you know no one but God will see. God moves on your heart to be generous and give to someone else. How can you do it in a way where no one else other than God will know that you did it? You're walking around, you see trash in the, somebody's wrapper is on the floor in the church. Can you grab it when no one else is looking? Just go, man, I know God's looking. I wanna please him, I wanna serve him this way. Can we somehow partake in giving to charity or serving in charity? What are the ways in which we can do the most to make sure the least people know about it? Or do we have to selfie it every time? Do we have to make sure that people knew what we did? Or can we live before the eyes of the Father, living for His approval, His praise, His pleasure, His delight in His children? See, God doesn't only see what we do. He sees our heart in what we do. That's why we must check ourselves daily. Because truly, every good and perfect gift comes from Him. The good things we do with our body, with our voice, with our resources, it all came from Him anyways, as James is going to tell us that every good and perfect gift comes down from Him. So it's all His anyways. It's not for our pat on the back. It's not for our Lifting ourselves up is for our obedience to him, our service and modeling like him, and therefore it is for his glory, not ours. Everything down to the very breath in our lungs is his. That's why we sing, it's your breath and our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you. All that we have is from God and we give it back to him. 
So let us worship him this morning.